Hello and welcome to the Kalkatindi Show. We don't believe in ourselves enough to really go after our dreams. I had a purpose. I was in a marriage. I wasn't too happy with my relationship at the time. I don't know what it is yet, but I just, I really trust it. And it's, it's exciting to tap into it because you see little breadcrumbs of it, like little kind of tastes of different mm-hmm. kind of doors that you're opening up. I do genuinely believe mm-hmm. that if you have the confidence and the self-belief to achieve, that anything is is possible. I really can create change in this world. I really can help people. They've changed my life. They've completely revolutionized the way that I think and they've encouraged my highest self. And, um, you know, I think the foundations in those three books. I'm here with David Jokes. David is a neurolinguistic programming coach. He has been involved in the health and wellness industry as an innovator and instructor for 24 years. He's a chartered herbalist. He's the owner of Factor 3 Fitness and the IAM Project. He's a nationally ranked natural bodybuilder by the International Federation of Bodybuilding and Fitness. And most recently, he gave a TEDx talk titled Flexing Your Emotional Muscle. David, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you, Carl. Actually, no, I really appreciate being here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. So, David, I want to set the stage here so that we can hit the ground running. At 13, you leave home from an abusive situation. And at 28, you get this epiphany that if you don't do something to change the trajectory of your life, you leave this planet, nobody would know and nobody would care. And you say the challenge for you was that the anger, the shame and frustration of who you thought you are wouldn't let you step into anything you are learning. Can you take us through this journey with an emphasis on what you had to do to successfully redesign your life to become who you are today? Yeah, that was uh, that was such an interesting experience. I, I was living in actually in the south of Portugal. <clears throat> I was in this little village called uh, Praia de Luz in the south of Portugal, and uh, and I don't know where it came from, but it just it was just this feeling that struck me, and maybe maybe it was a moment of sobriety, you know, a, a day that I wasn't actually you know, partying with uh, with the other silly people I was hanging out with. Mm-hmm. But it's that feeling, yeah, that I just uh, <clears throat> you know I've been living off the grid. I've been working in resorts and working in bars and restaurants. And it's just been kind of what an ongoing, ongoing uh, party for, for you know, a decade or so. And, um, and I, I just felt really hollow and I go, man, you know, if I died tomorrow, nobody would care and nobody would even know because I had been, <clears throat> I wasn't doing anything really, anything really bad, but I wasn't doing anything really good either. And, uh, <clears throat> So it was in around, <clears throat> excuse me, it was in around that time that I um, had a conversation with my father, and I was estranged from my family for many years. Um, um, but I, I had a conversation with him, mm-hmm. and he had said that he said, "Listen, I," he said, that "My father, my father at that time owned a natural health clinic here in Canada." Mm-hmm. He said, "I can't afford to pay you. Like I can't afford to pay you a salary, but I can give you room and board, and I'll help educate you." Um, if you're interested. So, you know, I, I, I took that chance, right? I mean, you know, I mean, after all, I, I was living in, in a uh, tennis resort in the south of Portugal. It's not like my life from the outside looked all that bad. You know, it's, um, I, I had keys to all the restaurants and bars. 
Um, you know, I had, um, you know, I didn't pay any rent. My food was free. So, I mean, it looked like a pretty ideal life, but it was a life without meaning and without substance. And that was the part that was actually really, uh, that's the part that was actually really terrifying uh, once, I, once I recognized that. So I, I traveled back home to Canada. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it was so funny because I, I was so far off the grid, meaning that uh, I, had, I had not really played a role in, in society for so many years. Uh, um, the, government almost, the government wanted to know where I was. I, you know, I, didn't have, I never finished high school. I never finished school. <clears throat> mm. I, ha- I had no money in the bank. I had no money at all, um, and and the government. I just I struggled to get a bank account because nobody because I, I was just gone. Like there was an eight year gap in my life where I didn't pay taxes, didn't really show up, and um, you know, and it was just it was so it was very strange. I, I just like I said, I just kind of disappeared from uh, the world for a, a period of time. <clears throat> Coming back to Canada, working with my father. I was twenty eight years old. And uh, moving back in with my parents, uh, that was actually a little hard to do. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, I've been on my own off and on since I was 13. Um, so moving back, so there had to be, there was a bit of humility uh, required to, uh, to go back and start studying. And, but it's, um, and one of, one of the important things was, and I was actually quite fortunate because I don't, you know, not everybody will have this opportunity, <clears throat> is I was able to cut off all the people in my past that were a part of my kind of chaotic life. Mm-hmm. I was able to get away from all of them, away from the people who drank heavily, uh, away, the, away from the people who, uh, use, uh, who were drug users, away from the people who smoked. Um, I was able to kind of shelter myself away from all that. Um, and then I, so I ended up doing a three and a half year internship at my father's clinic. And that was kind of the beginning of uh, this whole new chapter of my life. Yeah, and you have this quote. Uh, I'm going to to recite it here by William yeah. James, the philosopher, and he says, "In the dim background of my mind, I know what I ought to be doing, but somehow I cannot start. Every moment I expect to break, but it continues pulse. Sorry, every moment I expect the spell to break, but it continues pulse after pulse. I found that to be so powerful." especially the part that says somehow I can understand because I think on some level, each one of us has kind of dealt with something similar to this, right? You know, you want to do something, you know, you should be doing something, but you don't do it and you just don't know why, right? Well, and, and, and it's kind of comforting to know that, I mean, that was written in the 1800s. So it's not a new problem, obviously. Mm-hmm. But this quote resonated with you a lot as I was listening to one of your speeches. And I want you to tell me how, it, how exactly did this quote change, impact your decisions from around 28, like how you came to, you know, to, to redesign your life. You refer back to this quote. I want to know exactly what happened there. Yeah, well, you know, why, it, why, it, um, why it resonated so well with me um, was that it's just... <clears throat> You know, I, I my my career is obviously in health and wellness. That's where I stepped into, um, and and I became really I became very curious. Uh, uh, I was more I was interested in problem solving. Uh, maybe that's a male attribute. Uh, you know, you know, you know, men like to go fix things. <laughs> Perhaps we're wired that way. But uh, 
but but regardless of reason, it just I came I became fascinated by the fact that that conversation has been been here for a long time. We've been we've been sitting in this space waiting for you know the spell you know whatever has captivated us and kept us locked in this in this uh, uh, let's say a terrible lifestyle or a terrible relationship or, or a terrible career choice or whatever the case may be. And I, I became curious, you know, wondering, well, so what is the spell, right? You know, if there is a spell, what is that spell exactly? Because it, mm. because he didn't say what it was. He just said it was, right? This is a spell that kept us, kept us, uh, and we wait for the spell. So <clears throat> uh, I have a very inquiring mind, at least I do now. Um, and so I, I wondered what, I wondered what was in that space. And so I, I as I started reading, I kept that question in my mind, what's the spell, right? Why is it, you know, why is it that we have so much intelligence and we have, we have access to so many resources? Like even nowadays, if you go on Amazon, you know, and you, uh, and you uh, type in personal development literature, you'll come up with 90,000 plus titles, mm -hmm. right? If you go on Google, if you go on Google and you type in personal development, you'll get about 6,500,000,000 hits. That's insane. That's insane, mm -hmm. right? So obviously there's a real big uh, curiosity in this. There's a real big interest in this. But the spell part of it, I became really fascinated. And what, um, and what, what, actually, what actually got me there, what actually started – me to help me unravel what the spell was uh, actually came from a completely different thought process. It was, wasn't even related to it except for the fact that it had something to do with the human body. <clears throat> and what I became curious about is that um, working in the fitness industry at the beginning of my career, for the most part, uh, we have people coming in and wanting to get in better shape and wanting to you know, do something different with their health. And they were part of that group that were, you know, waiting for the spell to break, you know, waiting for the spell to break so they get healthier, waiting for the spell to break before they start eating better. And, mm -hmm. and working with those people over time, I recognized that it's just, you know, it doesn't matter how, how much I could show them what, you know, it doesn't matter what I was uh, providing for them. I could write out incredible recipes. I could even go to the house and cook it for them. If that was a thing, I, I did everything I could, and yet still such a small percentage of the population really actually took the information and did something with it. <clears throat> and, and I became really frustrated with it because I, in the beginning, I blamed myself, going, well, obviously, I'm not that good. I can't be that, uh, I can't be that good of a trainer and a coach if I can't convince people to change their mind and, and adopt a new lifestyle. Because it it, it's reasonable, you know, if you're, if you're you know, 50 pounds overweight and, you run the, and you're running the risk of actually having uh, type 2 diabetes and heart issues, like why wouldn't you? I mean, it just, it's logical that you would want to change that to do something better. And yet we see globally that's not the case. <clears throat> so, again, the, the, I kept inquiring, you know, and then this question just kept rolling around inside my head. You know, so what is the spell? And so what ended up happening is that I, uh, <clears throat> part of my career and what I got involved in was uh, physical rehab. So, uh, you know, people, uh, a physiotherapist would send me their client and I would work on, you know, uh, help them with their injured shoulder and make it better. I'd work with a, a back injury or a, a client had a brand new hip replacement and I would actually help them become stronger, more functional. And I became really interested in the fact that <clears throat> Our physical injuries are not only at the level of the body. So if you injure your knee, 
And, um, you know, and of course, for the next couple of weeks, maybe you're limping around on until the swelling goes down. Well, not only do you have an impression in the knee and, um, and some, and just some potential damage to the knee, it's also recorded in your mind. It's also recorded in your memory. And the part of your memory, actually, part of your memory called procedural memory, right? A procedure is just that, just the procedure of how do I extend my knee? How do I flex my muscles? So the procedural memory holds all the information about the how-to, how to move, how to tie your shoe, how to ride a bike, how to set up a Zoom call, right? It's, a, it's, it's this part of your memory that holds all that data. When it comes to our, our, our life, our experiences in life, that's stored in parts of our brain collectively called our episodic memory. And so easy way to remember, you think about episodes of a movie, right? Um, you're, if you're watching Netflix and there's 20 episodes, well, they're just all episodes of, of a, a particular set of characters and the conversation. So your memory, your life experiences are stored in your episodic memory. Mm-hmm. And so when I started looking at, when I started looking at that saying, well, the person with an injured knee is afraid to put weight on that knee because of the memory of being injured. The person coming in to, uh, to have a health transformation, to lose weight or to, to, uh, to uh, uh, recover from a knee injury or what have you, um, all they have to go on is the, me- is the memory of who they were prior to them walking the door to greet me. The self-image. Right? Yeah, well, and, and, but yeah, the self-image, and it's... But, but here's the interesting thing, and there's, uh, and I think it was uh, uh, Freud and Carl Jung, these uh, uh, psychologists in the 1800s, had, had really, they'd really kind of brought this to the forefront. Uh, William James was, was the father of modern psychology. Uh, but Freud and uh, Jung really just, they really provide some incredible insight. And I think, it was, I think it was Sigmund Freud that actually had talked about that we are a collection of numerous, numerous personalities and identities, all living and sharing the same body. Mm-hmm. And, be, that, and that became a really interesting thought process because have you ever done anything that's out of character for you? You know? Um, <clears throat> when, when, you're, when you're sitting down and you're alone with your thoughts, are you ever disturbed by what goes through your mind? Uh, when I ask this to people, every, everybody gets uncomfortable. <laughs> because right everybody because you know they think oh my god he's reading my mind but David uh, <laughs> I was starting to get a bit uncomfortable because I was like okay where's this going <laughs> <laughs> right so but but here but here's the interesting piece right it's just if you look at you know I I wanted to, I wanted to script this conversation down to to find out what, what, what was the spell, and that was the goal, right? What is the spell that stops us from, from acting on our intelligence? Because really, at the end of the day, uh, Carl, the only reason we're unhappy, I believe, or the primary reason we're unhappy, mm-hmm. is that we know different, we know better, mm-hmm. but we're not doing better, and we don't know why. Yeah, and that's exactly, the, that's exactly where I was going to next. Why do we get that, that state of inaction, even when we know what we ought to be doing? In other words, why do we know better, but don't do better? Well, and well, and there's a, there's a, I have a couple of thoughts around it. One of them, one of my thoughts is around uh, one of the things that I've been exploring, and I believe it has a big impact is what has happened in modern culture. If you go back, uh, you know, if you go back, you know, over 100 years ago, and you look at the world then, it was very different, obviously, um, a lot less technology. But but since mankind's been on the planet, for the most part, we've had 
we've had cultural and spiritual uh, uh, aspects to uh, to uh, every geographic location where humans live, mm-hmm. right? So there's always a there's always a set of practices, a set of uh, cultural spiritual practices. So let's say if you grew up in England, uh, you know, 200 years ago. Uh, you know, you're probably a Catholic, uh, probably a Catholic of some sort, or maybe a Protestant, um, and that was and that and religion and or spirituality, whatever you want to call it, that that the sense of the divine was a part of your life. It was actually you actually had a belief system and a set of rules and regulations that governed your life. But we all shared the same rules. So if you lived in a family, let's say a Catholic family, for example, and it just and this is this is not about being pro-Catholic. This is just an illustration. But if you lived in a Catholic family 200 years ago in England, um, you you had there was a set of rules that surrounded um, the way you interacted with each other. There was a set of rules around the food that you ate. There was a set of guidelines about uh, about rituals around uh, birthdays, around death, around marriages. There was rituals, and we all shared the same rituals inside that community, inside that household. Mm-hmm. So, so what was interesting is that you know we we had these really we had these set of rules that we all agreed upon. We had this kind of a spiritual practice that we all bought into. And, and I think when we had that, we had that way of, um, we had a more transcendent way of thinking. And then we had exposure. Everybody in our, in our environment kind of shared the same values, shared the same ideas, was heading in the same direction. I think it became much easier, much easier to follow through on the things that, that you said you wanted to follow through on. One, because you had a you had a practice you had a, a practice of let's say let's call it character building, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and you had a spiritual belief that somebody that there's somebody in the sky looking down on you, judging you, right, day in day out. And you had and of course you're a little bit intimidated and you thought you know there's going to be a there's a, a big risk not to showing up properly in life so that maybe you're a little bit intimidated. Um, by what would happen if you didn't, and so that you held yourself to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, and I think that practice, and it's not about living in fear, but it's actually, but it's actually assigning character, actually having a higher level of character to, for yourself. And, and so, in the way, the, you know, the sense, the sense of character, the sense of uh, personal responsibility uh, to, our, to our physical health, to our personal finances, to our, to our fellow man, to our neighbor, to our children, to our partners. Um, you know, that's really kind of gotten diluted. And now, especially, well, you know, I'm sure it's in every part of the world, but certainly North American cultures, it's, it's just very fuzzy, right? Personal responsibility is very fuzzy. It's, it's, been, it's been switched over. Now we think we have personal rights, right? I had the right to be unhealthy. I had the right to destroy my health, but and, and it's, that's not exactly true because everything we do, we're part of an ecosystem. Everything we do affects everyone else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything we do affects someone else. And, but it's, uh, so getting back to that idea of, of the spell and, and um, what that really is. <clears throat> so if you imagine, if you imagine if, uh, if I ask you about, uh, it, let's say, let's say you come to me as a client and you have a weight issue Mm-hmm. And uh, inside that, with that weight issue, um, let's say 40 pounds, it took you three years to put the 40 pounds on. But there's something that led up to that lifestyle change before, which, which stopped you from exercising, stopped you from eating right. And so what happens inside your mind that when we start talking about weight loss and exercise, and the likelihood is that over the last three years or so, 
you probably failed a whole bunch of times at, at getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you probably, when you look in the mirror and you think about what had happened to get you there, and then you think about what you allowed to have happened, because we let it happen, right? It doesn't just happen. We let it happen. Yeah. Um, and then, then you have all these, you know, these bad, these mixed feelings about yourself. And, and as you said, poor self-image. So the idea you have of who you are inside your mind. And so whenever we talk about diet and exercise, the only reference point that you have right now is the reference point of all the negativity that you've assigned to the idea of, of uh, weight loss and exercise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So having that, having that poor self-image actually gives us a negative foundation to try to build from. So every time you think about it, you automatically get the feelings associated to the negative part of your life, the the negative ideas around weight loss, self-image, and and even your value as a human being sometimes. People people are really hard on themselves when it comes to this. Mm -hmm. And what does the process of undoing that, you know, negative self-image, all the wrong programming. What is that process like? What does it take to undo that programming? Well, one of the things that we, we know that, uh, and, and again, this has been stated, you know, hundreds of times over hundreds of years, is that we know that emotions drive behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, how, we, how we feel about ourselves, uh, you know, and, and it's so fascinating. I'll give you a really interesting example. I was working with a lady um, and our first session that we had, we was having her doing a bunch of work um, and trying to get, teach her how to make her, her, her buttock muscles, her hips to become active. So showing her an exercise to turn those muscles on. And as we went through the process, of course, you know, she was a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, physically, um, you know, she worked out, she worked fairly hard. And but what was interesting, the next time I met with her, she goes, is it possible to lose weight after one session? And I said, no, uh, no, well, maybe, but probably not. She goes, so why do you ask? She goes, well, after our workout the other day, you really, you, you really you taught me how to work on my glutes and they became really active. And they're, you know, I was a little bit sore, to be honest, the next day. But when I looked in the mirror, I actually thought my bum was actually smaller. It actually felt smaller. Mm-hmm. So, so here's the interesting thing. So she has... She has excess body fat covering her muscles, covering her body. Mm-hmm. And what we did is we highlighted the shape of her glutes inside of her body because now she could feel them and she could feel the muscle underneath the skin. And when she looked in the mirror, she was seeing what she was feeling. Oh, okay, 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 okay. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, it does, it does. And it was, but that was really that was a big aha moment for me. And I'm going, okay, that, well, that's interesting. So... So if I feel that, if I feel like I have a nice round bum, if I feel that I have nice shoulders and, and let's say taunt abs, if I have a little bit of that tone, it's like a dial tone. I have a little bit of that messaging going back between the brain and the body. And I, I have a sense of what my body feels like underneath the skin. I'm going to eat differently. I'm going to see myself differently. I'm going to dress differently. And I'm going to show up way different. Mm-hmm. All right? Because, because it's based on how I feel because what we see in the mirror is so subjective. It, do, it doesn't tell us the truth at all. Um, so, so, so seeing that it, that was so impactful and, and made me realize just how, um, uh, just how um, elusive this whole idea of fitness is. And we're trying to be able to, uh, to try to have the conversation. You, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a competitive bodybuilder and I've been in the, you know, comp- competed for the last six, seven years 
Mm-hmm. And, and I see people coming in, and both men and women, that are in incredible physical shape, but they can't see that. They see flaws, right? The lens they're looking at, through, through the lens they're looking at to see their body in the mirror is, is terribly flawed. So, so even if you attain what people consider a success, you, just, you may not be able to see it. Because again, like you said the lens you're looking through is incorrect. So, so back to your original question, I tend to get off on tangents. I apologize for that. Right. <laughs> Uh, the question about how do you move forward? Mm-hmm. Well, there's something that there's, there's something I call "ass to the flame" syndrome, and "ass to the flame" syndrome simply means that if I if I'm holding a candle in my hand and it's and it's lit and you back up into it, you're not going to stand there very long before you get really uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and you're going to move, and you're going to move away until you're no longer uncomfortable. Well, that's kind of what happens when people are dealing with uh, with parts of the life that are uncomfortable. If you finally get to a point where I am so uncomfortable with my weight or my joints hurt when I move and I just can't take it anymore, I'm really super uncomfortable, I'm going to do something about this. So they call a trainer, they see a nutritionist, uh, you know, they make a change. And so they so they basically move away from the discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Now, they have no idea where, they're, where they want to go, but they move away from the discomfort. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they as soon as they take action and move away from the discomfort, they're no longer uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So they stop. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Because all, all the action did, the action was was wasn't enough to get them move them forward consistently. It was only enough to get them uh, to get them started. Oh, but then on the other side of that, yeah, pardon me. Yeah, I was just adding that it was just enough to get them away from the discomfort, but not to get them yes. to go the way. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, and that's why I call it acid flame syndrome. Because, and and what happens? Well, they move, they get enough just to overcome some of the discomfort. The brain feels good, they feel positive. Their self esteem is up a little bit. I ate spinach today, I feel really good. I went for a walk, I feel really good. And then, you know, two weeks later, the whole thing just dissolves and there's nothing going on. So, so, so I, I think fear and frustration and discomfort, I think they're, all emotions are valuable because they're basically trying to give us, they're trying to tell us something. So allow the discomfort to get you moving, but then then have a higher ideal, you know, we talk about goal setting, have that built in front of you. But but but, it, but here's the, the crucial thing about setting, setting an ideal goal. So, you know, it has to be very, very crystal clear, very specific. So somebody, somebody, uh, I was talking to a client this morning, and we were having a bit of a joke about this very conversation. When somebody mm-hmm. comes in and says, "Listen, I, I, I want to be in better shape. You know, I just want to get in good shape." Well, uh, Carl, rounds a shape. What shape do you want? S- specifically, what do you want? You know, and so people are really too vague about what they want, and I think they're afraid of asking for too much. I think they're afraid, you know, that if I ask for what I really want. Either I'm going to get mocked or ridiculed or I'll, I'll disappoint myself and others. Um, so people really set very kind of fuzzy goals for themselves because it just it feels overwhelming to think about where you need to go or where you'd like to be. So when we start setting the goal is that we ask, so, well, so why the goal? So you're, for, you're 40 pounds overweight. Uh, what is the negative impact of that, of that 40 pounds? Well, I'm kind of sluggish and it's hard to get to bed in the morning and I just don't feel good. Okay. Well, okay. So you feel sluggish. It's hard to get to bed in the morning. You don't feel good. How does that affect your life? Are you married? Yes. I have a, you know, let's say I have a wife. Okay. 
And how does feeling sluggish and being overweight and being uncomfortable, not feeling good about yourself, how does that actually affect the relationship with your wife? Well, you know, it uh, actually affects a lot. Well, how so? And when, and when we're doing this conversation, we want to get rid of the fuzzy part of the conversation. We want clarity on exactly what's going on. And this is what people don't do. They keep this part too fuzzy. Mm-hmm. And say, well, okay, the way it affects my relationship with my wife is that, um, well, it's just actually, you know, it's I'm kind of embarrassed about my body. And, and so, you know, our sex life is not what it could be. And she wants to be uh, intimate, and I, I just feel I, I, I get this big belly, and it really bothers me. So, and it does for males, whether they like to admit it, whether they admit it or not. Mm-hmm. So, it kind of bugs me, and it, and it kind of works on my self-esteem, makes me a bit stressed out, and and then I feel like a little, a little bit less of a man, and you know, and this kind of uh, this and this spiral effect on the way that this this process goes. Uh, I'm starting to hurt my lower back, and now I have this. Uh, you know, I had a buddy of mine that just had a heart attack, and now I'm afraid about. I'm afraid I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm not afraid enough to change it. I'm just afraid enough to be afraid, right? And live in fear of that. So I have to push that away because I have to function. So when we create clarity on exactly how their present life and lifestyle is is negatively affecting them, we actually make the flame really big, and we and we make it very apparent. That uh, you know, we we create the clarity around the position because we want to we want to give so much detail to it, so much truth to it, so that there's nowhere for uh, nowhere for it to hide. And once they feel that, it says, okay, you know, we say, well, it's important to understand where you're at. You know, it's like a GPS on a on your phone. You can't put in a vague address. It needs to know specifically where you are. Otherwise, it can't it can't say, well, you know, I'm in downtown Vancouver. And I need to get to somewhere in, in Quebec. It, it, you know, it doesn't. The computer can't operate with very can't operate with general generalities. So, what, so once we unearth what's going on for them, and they and they're emotionally connected to just where the struggles are, and they're been really honest, probably for the first time about how bad they feel it is. We look on the other side. And said, well, so what do you want? Well, I want to be in better shape. Explain to me what that looks like and feels like. Well, better shape. I'd like. Well, I'd like the belly to go. Okay. Let's say. Let's say in the next eight months we lose the forty pounds of belly. How's it make you feel? Well, I feel great. Okay. Well, what would great feel like? So, what difference would great feel like? If you woke up in the morning without a belly, how would you start your day? Well, um, my wife likes. You know. Uh, you know. She likes to be intimate in the morning. So, man, I, if I was waking up feeling great, I, I would start my day off with having having. You know. Um, having a beautiful intimate moment with my wife and what it, that'd be a great way to start a day. And, um, you know, it's just, I'd be, I'd probably get up earlier and I'd be out of bed faster and I just, yeah, I mean, it would be incredible. And there's clothes that I'd like to wear and I wouldn't have to wear these big baggy things to hide my belly. I just feel more confident. And, uh, and if I go to work, well, if I'm more confident in my, in my relationship and in, in my body and my health, Man, it's just being at work, I'd probably I'd get way more done. I'd be a lot more excited to be there. Um, it would change everything. And you, and you and as I'm talking, you kind of hear me. I'm like the excitement around the possibility of what that could look like. <laughs> and and as they're talking, says, so "Where do you feel that? Where is that? Where is all that feeling? Where is it being generated? When you talk about, you know." This your life unfolding in this really amazing way because you're responsible enough to take action and ask for help and you followed through and it feels good. Where do, where do you have that feeling inside your body? 
So I kind of feel in my stomach like excitement. So, okay, great. What I want you to do is I want you to remember this feeling because feelings drive behavior. Mm-hmm. And I want you to think not I want I want you to not only think about what you said and write it down, but I want you to create a vision board and I want you to associate this feeling of excitement to everything on that board. And think about all the things over the next 10 years that you're going to get to do because you're not going to have a heart attack and because you've taken care of your health and you you bathe yourself in that feeling and said and life will open up you open up for you in some extraordinary ways. So what we're doing in that process is that we're teaching them to pay attention to the emotions that they're choosing to express. Mm-hmm. And when they feel that when, when they're, when they have this sensation coming up, feeling like, well, this is, you know, this is the spell that has kept me under before the spell has a feeling. And all I, and, and what we teach people how to do is how to change that feeling with a different one, the feeling of excitement for a future that I'm going to create. Mm-hmm. So, David, what I'm getting from this is that the reason we know better but we don't do better is because we don't have clarity of exactly what better looks like. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh uh So the answer, the solution is to get clear on exactly what it is you want to do, be specific, and then you'll definitely take action, right? Yeah, well, and get clear what it is and, and, and precisely what would it feel like if that oh, was your okay. reality. Yeah, and, that, and that's the part, right? Because it's, you know, we, we have uh, people use mantras. You know, they have sta- mantra statements that they repeat over and over again. Mm. Um, they have vision boards. They write goals. But, again, it goes back to the fundamental basis that emotions drive behavior. Mm-hmm. What would it feel like to have those goals? And if you don't understand that feeling – the only feeling you're left with is the feeling of frustration and uh, you know frustration and maybe some personal shame and apathy. So, yeah. so we're really trying to create a new way of feeling, and that feel again, that feeling generates the possibility for us going forward. Okay, now that makes sense. That makes perfect sense because if you do feel great or you feel good about the future you are visualizing, then obviously you're going to take action. Absolutely. Well, and it's, you know, you know, what's so interesting is that, you know, and this is, this is another real crucial part to this. And it's something that's a little bit tricky in the beginning, I think, for people to, to figure out. Mm-hmm. If I choose those feelings of excitement, if I know what it feels like to be, let's say, to be an honorable person, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I, know what it feel, I know what it feels like my body to, um, to be, uh, let's say, healthy and successful and to be positive. I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And that's my goal, and that's that's actually my work. My work is actually is creating more and more things in my life that I actually feel that way. Anytime I'm feeling differently, if I'm feeling to the contrary, I don't have to actually buy into those feelings. I can, you know, if I feel, let's say, a bit of frustration, well, I don't have to actually allow the frustration to stick around. I can look at it and, and see, try to see what frustration is telling me. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I feel fear or anger, I can look around in my environment to see what fear and anger are trying to tell me. It's a message, but it's not telling me that I have to live there. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And quite often what happens for a lot of people, especially, you know, in this idea around self-image and, and moving life forward, is that the feelings are gen- – the, fe- the negative feelings that we get inside of our body are generated from a younger version of who we are. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a quick example, and this will tie together for for as nicely, I think. When I was four years old, 
was walking across a piece of wood across a, a, a ditch that was full of water. Uh, my brothers had crossed before me successfully. I didn't make it. I fell off. Mm-hmm. I fell off into the water. And, of course, I'm breathing water into my lungs. It's dark and dirty and cold. And, um, you know, so that was my first kind of near drowning experience. Mm-hmm. So many years later, in my 20s, it's just uh, I was still a bit intimidated by going out of water, swimming, you know, swimming in deep water. Never knew why. I, was just, I just thought because I wasn't a good swimmer. And if somebody would, uh, let's say we were playing around at the swimming pool and somebody holds my head underwater, mm-hmm. I would react very aggressively, right? Like just oh. like I would panic. I just mm-hmm. absolutely panic. Mm-hmm. And what was happening is that my brain was taking in the experience of being trapped underwater. Mm-hmm. It was saying, where have we felt this before and how did we react? So the brain took my current experience of me when I was 20 mm-hmm. and reached way back into my memory, grabbed the experience of the four-year-old and brought the same emotions forward. So my reaction as a 20-year-old male was actually with the emotions of a four-year-old child. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right, because because that's the brain. The brain compares what's happening now with what happened before, mm-hmm. and so I had the I had the exaggerated response of a four year old child. Those emotions running the body of an adult male, mm. which oh. which so the and again and this is something that's really important to understand here. When somebody says that's totally out of character for you, right? that's totally out of character for the for this person. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, um, you know, that, that's so unlike her. Mm-hmm. But it might be totally characteristic for you when you were 16. It might be totally like her when she was 12. Mm-hmm. Because if you understand how the brain works, the brain is just always comparing with what's going on today with what happened before. And it's trying to help you make a decision on what the world means in front of you. And so if I have emotions showing up that are really unusual, and let's say they're aggressively, they may be more, uh, um, I'm more emotional than I should be, or I'm more angry than I should be, or more uh, uh, scared than I should be. I look at those emotions, if I look around in my environment, and there's nothing in my environment that should suggest that I should be acting that way. I know it's my brain just trying to make sense of everything by using my memories of my, my uh, old reality. And I and I don't have to buy into them. Wow, that is very history repeating. Yeah, well, it's so strange because, it, and that's the part that we need to understand. And that's why actually having like we call a spiritual practice, I need to know why I'm here. I need to know the positive attributes. You know, I need to know my values. I need I need to know what that looks like. I need to keep my vision in front. of me. My grandmother used to pray when she was alive. She prayed every morning and, and read the little King James Bible that she had. Mm-hmm. And, and why she did that is that it helped her get her mind ready for the day because she knew that the day was going to be busy. She was a nurse, uh, lots of stress you know, in her life, and she had to you know, work hard. So it was a way of saying, listen, the world's going to give me all these scenarios and all these possibilities. I'm going to meet all these different people and all these various sort of forms of stress in my life. It's all going to show up. How do I stay in control? By knowing what I believe, knowing what it feels like, and practice it every day, every day. And and it's just those old rituals, like I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation, are so powerful. Mm-hmm. But because we don't have those kind of rituals anymore in our life, we don't, we're not as strong in those kind of patterns. David, I want us to transition to confidence. 
Okay. And how, because we've been talking about self-image, I want to know how, what does it take to build confidence, true, real confidence? Not just wearing a facade and, you know, just putting on a show. What is, what is true confidence, first of all? Well, it's, I think confidence is the um, uh, true confidence. Wow. Um, I, 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 it's, it's kind of tied to self-worth a little bit, but it's, it's, the, um, it's the belief in our capacity uh, to get things done. It's our belief in our capacity to figure things out. Now, I mean, having self, you know, being a confident person doesn't mean that you have all the answers. Um, actually, there's a word that just came to mind, courageous. I think mm. people, having confidence means that you're courageous because, you know, because we know we all understand that there's so much that I don't understand, but I have the courage to ask for help and I have the courage to ask questions and I have the courage to stay in that space until I, I figure it out or somebody helps me figure it out. So I think being confident, uh, you know, in short, is that I trust my word. I trust my own word. I'm true. I'm, I'm truthful to myself, and I'm willing to ask for help in spaces where I don't have the answer. So, is there a difference between self-esteem and confidence? Uh, yeah, actually, you know, and, and I think self-esteem is um, there. There's. Uh, I was listening to uh, a podcast the other day, mm-hmm. and, and it was actually very critical of self-esteem. Um, right. You know, because we should have good self-esteem. Well, yeah, yeah, perhaps. I mean, we should have, we should have, uh, um, you know, we should have some degree of self-worth, right? Knowing that, you know, we're intrinsically we have some value. Mm. But I think, I think, good self-esteem. I, I think um, um, the, the the criticism around self-esteem was that you should you should feel better about yourself. Well. But what if you're not doing anything? What if what if there's a, a whole bunch of things that you know you're not doing well? Should you feel good about that? So you know you know there you know there is a higher standard that we're all asked to live under. Uh, we're at, you know we're asked to do our part as a as a you know as a family member, as a community member, as a member you know as a part of humanity. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that, I think that they were talking about this uh, a, a good sense of self responsibility, personal responsibility. Um, w- will generate better self-worth, which generates more confidence. Trying to have good self-esteem means is saying that we are good just the way we are, and you know, and and that's not you know we don't we rarely think that way. We rarely think that we're good just the way we are, and when somebody mm-hmm. and when people try to convince us that, that you know it's you know it's like the expression that that. Um, that people get it. That people will say, you know, you should just love people just the way they are. So, well, yeah, I understand that. that you know, that you know, they're, the mistakes that people make are, you know, they're just errors. We all make mistakes, and the fact that you're unhealthy, that's, you know, that's, you know, there's obviously issues lending to that. Mm-hmm. But, but self responsibility generates self worth. If you're be, if you're taking responsibility for who you are and your actions, mm-hmm. and maybe trying to clean up a bit of the problems in the community, that will generate self worth. And self-worth, because you adopted your share of responsibility for the world and the problems in it, will give you the confidence because you you, know, you see that you're capable of standing up to the challenge. Okay. But the self-esteem, does that make sense? Self-esteem just seems like if you're sitting there doing nothing, you still should feel good about yourself. And that's not necessarily true. 
Okay, so for confidence to exist, self-esteem must exist first. Correct? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think I think self-esteem, um, you know, can be a side effect. Is the second stage. I think personal responsibility um, is, is because again, you can have you can have personal responsibility and not feel confident about it. Um, you know, I don't always feel confident in things I do, but I have enough personal responsibility to know that I must. I must do this. Why? Because because I bear the responsibility of of looking after my looking after my problems and helping my children and helping my friends or family. And so that so standing up to the standing up to the the challenges of life generate it makes you feel better about who you are, which gives you that confidence. You can call it self esteem. But I, but I like I like the word confidence more because confidence uh, generally we assume confidence comes from you actually have uh, having done something that's challenging overcome it and succeeded and therefore I'm confident. Mm -hmm. Self esteem feels like that you're being given a uh, you're being given a pass, and I think good self esteem really is is you know it, it's a it's a reference. Having good self esteem means that we're able to reference are able to see inside of ourselves that we've, we've shown some courage, we've, we've adopted some responsibility for our, our life, for our actions. Uh, we've acted on that courageously, which means that we've, uh, you know, we've taken care of maybe some financial problems, maybe some, some credit card debt that we need to sort out or physical health or, or relationship issues. We've had the courage to, to try to try to fix those problems. Um, and, and by successfully doing that, we generate, we create more confidence, you know, because somebody's confident means that they've been down that road and they figured it out. They've actually, they've overcome some obstacles and that's why they show the confidence, you know, in their day-to-day -day life. Uh, self-esteem, if we just say that people should have good self-esteem, well, that's not necessarily the case because if you're not doing, you know, if you're not really doing anything productive, if you're not moving your life forward, not looking after your health, not looking after your finances, not paying attention to your relationships, why should you guys have good self-esteem, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's it's something that you know that we, we earn the right. You know, uh, happiness is not given. You know, we earn the right. We earn the right to a good life. We earn the right by being productive, and we all bear the we all bear, you know, we all bear the responsibility of making our lives in the world a better place by doing our part. And and I think the more we do that, we you know we we. We gain the confidence and we realize that, man, okay, I did that. If you lost your first five pounds and go, wow, you know, you know, actually I got up an hour earlier and, okay, I did that. And there was no self-esteem there. It was just, you know, it was just I'm more confident because now I trust myself. And I guess that's probably a key part. I trust my own judgment. I trust the, I trust the things I say to myself. I trust the fact that I said I was going to do it and I did it. You know, there's nothing, worse than, than, there's nothing worse than continually breaking promises to yourself. And if you can't trust yourself, then how are you going to make it through? Mm -hmm. You know, I like what you said about I can trust my judgment because I want us to transition to emotional stability. And yes. how, yeah. So when I was watching your TED talk, TEDx talk, I liked the aspect of emotional stability and how it can help us to make impactful decisions. So you, you describe it as sitting in that space and being centered. And you say, how wonderful would it be when you're making a decision if you can trust your judgment because it comes from a strong emotional core? So I want to know, how can we make impactful decisions from that space, from that strong emotional core? 
Well, yeah, you know, again, I, I think you know, it's you know, it's easier said than done. But for the simple outline of it, uh, again, if I if I look at you know if I draw the comparison, you know, which it, which you probably saw in the video, mm-hmm. when I talk about uh, when I talk about physical training, I can take any athlete in the world and I can make them better at what they do by making their core stronger, by creating more alignment in their spine, right? Make sure there's more alignment, there's more congruency, and all these words are used in personal development. Right, alignment, congruency, and core strength. And if I focus on that, I automatically make them stronger and make them more agile. So I, I just carry that idea over into the idea of the world of personal development. And we look at so let's say you know I look at my life going forward, and part of my you know I know what my vision is for my life. I have my goals set out. So the, there's a question I can ask, which is, who do I need to become to have that life that I want? What are the character strengths? What are the values? What are the virtues? And so let's say maybe, let's say you maybe let you say my three top values or virtues, you know, if I actually express this way of being on a daily basis, I think I, I can have what I want. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's truth. Uh, maybe it's, um, maybe it's compassion and maybe it's courage. Right? So truth, courage, and compassion. If I was more truthful, if I was more compassionate and more courageous, all these goals I have on my vision board, they'd be mine. Okay, perfect. So now that you know what they are, now the next step is is um, and this is a you know so now you defined your core traits, right? Like your physical core strength. These are your spiritual, emotional core traits. Mm-hmm. So so now we have to define them and then embody them. So if somebody's doing so, if, and I'm going back and forth between exercise. If somebody's doing an exercise, and let's say I, you know, I'm going to have you do some sit-ups, and I say, okay, the sit-up exercise, what it's for, it's for this part of your abdominal, your abdominal wall, kind of around your lower belly. Now, where you don't want to feel it is in your neck and your jawline. You want to feel it in your lower belly only, okay? And so, continue doing the exercise. First, we're going to get the feeling. So you now you flex the lower belly a few times to get the feeling. Now I know what it feels like, and I know where it is in my body. Okay, perfect. You've located the feeling. You know that the feeling associated with that particular movement, right? So you, 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 you made that connection. Now, do the exercise. And when you stop, when you lose control, the feeling stop. So they'll do 10, 12 repetitions. They'll stop. I'm starting to feel it in my neck. Okay, perfect. So I want you to rest for a second. Now, turn the, now go back. Find that muscle again. Find that feeling again and start again. And so every, every step along the way, when they're doing an activity, they're looking for the feeling. What does it feel like? And if I, as long as I hang on to the feel, I know as long as I know where the what the feeling feels like and where I feel it, then then I'm always on track. So if I take it over to the emotional part of who I am, if I know what truth feels like, if I know what it means, and um, and I know what if I'm being honest and being truthful, what if I'm being honest and truthful in my life, and I think about times that I have been like really powerfully, what does that feel like? Well, it's all amazing. Like I. You know, it's just, and you know, my chest swelled up, and I felt like it's a sense of pride, and uh, and and I just felt good. I felt good about what I was doing. Perfect. Then you landmark that, and then you associate the word truth to the feeling of what what just happened inside your chest. So it's a feeling that you you start recording. Okay, what does compassion feel like? So what does compassion mean? Well, compassion means uh, being uh, being kinder to myself, not being so hard on myself when I make mistakes and not being so judgmental. Okay. And maybe towards other people. So we know what it means in the context. So we've defined it. We know what it's for. Okay. Which is important because then you know where to apply it. 
what does compassion feel like? And a lot of time people, well, I don't know. And they have to think about it. So, well, what, you know, so we go through, well, can you remember a time in your life where you were compassionate? Uh, and, and, or you show compassion to somebody else, or somebody showed incredible compassion towards you. And we pull a few of those memories out and said, now, as you remember the feeling of compassion, what does it feel like inside your body? Where do you experience it? And people might say, well, I feel it in my chest, or like in my heart. And it actually makes me feel kind of emotional, and, and, and it makes me feel like, like somebody cares. What does it feel like? Where do you feel it? Where do you experience that? Yeah. Uh, and I'll get, to the, I'll get to the reason why this is so important. And so we have people think about what it's for and then how do I experience that feeling in my body? Mm-hmm. And the, and the, uh, the last one was courage. What is courage feeling? Well, I kind of feel in my guts, in my stomach, like, uh, like anxiety, but the kind of excitement. Okay, when it, so what, what do you need courage for? Well, there's, there's conversations I have to have in my life that are going to require some courage, okay? Have you ever been courageous before? Well, uh, yeah. Well, when was that? And then we had to bring the experience of when they were courageous. Well, so because we again we have to understand we have to understand specifically right what is what's the emotion for what's the character trait for and what does it feel like when you have demonstrated that? So because you so then they embody well I feel courage in my guts and I remember the situation yeah I know exactly what it's for I know exactly where I need it in my life and I know exactly the feeling I need to bring forward to allow courage to show up. Yeah. And so now we identify yeah. the value, the idea. We, 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 we open it up more so we understand what it's for, right? Yeah. Uh, and then we also identify yeah. what the feeling is like. Because if I ask somebody, um, you know, how does, uh, when, when, you, when you have self-loathing, when you, when you don't like yourself, mm-hmm. uh, or you feel shame, or you feel fear, or you feel anger, where is it? And people will take two seconds to point to it. Mm-hmm. They have no problem mm-hmm. at all saying, I feel fear. I feel it in my stomach. and my stomach goes in the knots, how about, how about shame? I feel like I want to throw up. So what does it feel like? Oh, man, my chest is tight. And, you know, and I just I feel like bile acid rising in my stomach. And I can't, my throat is tight. I can't speak. And it's just my head's racing. Like we know what all the negative emotions feel like. And we can identify them in seconds. Why is why don't we do this? And we know how powerful negative negative emotions can drive us off course. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it make sense mm-hmm. that we would explore positive emotions in the same way? I know what they are. I know what they're for, and I know how they feel. So why don't we just practice part of our daily mantra, saying, uh, "You know, I am truthful. I am courageous. I am compassionate." And then we meditate on the feelings of them. We bring the memories back. We imagine being courageous in the events that we need to attend to. And we experience the feelings of being courageous as we fantasize about going through these problems and these these challenges. And we start building that that idea inside of our body. We have access to such powerful, powerful tools that have always been there. Mm -hmm. You know, David, I want to go back to the, you know, you talked about impactful decisions, right? And you, one of the examples you gave was, for example, if you want to quit a job or you want to start a business, you know, and uh, one would argue that one should focus, should use more logic than emotion, you know, in a situation like that, in an impactful decision like that. What do you say about that? Well, you know, again, there's always going to be, emotions are attached to everything, right? So on one level or another. We, uh, when we're trying to make, we're trying to make intelligent decisions, 
there's still there's still thought there's still an emotional piece attached to it. We just don't pay attention to it very much. So it's so what I'm not what I'm not saying for people to do is just have these elaborate fantasies about uh, making money and and you know being a you know a two percent body fat and just saying that only you know if you just imagine it and feel it it will happen. There's logical steps required. There's work and effort and intelligence required. But but what the what the feelings what the idea of bringing those feelings for, forward first is they'll they'll keep you focused on what you need to do rather because if we just operate from a logical point of view and say well okay well in order to open a business or start a business or to um, or to get into shape there's if we only operate off logic and there's no emotions attached to it, we probably won't stay there very long. And the second we get a big burst of emotions from of a more negative sort, which is fear of bankruptcy or, or you know, um, or intimidation of going into a fitness class because, you know, we've been intimidated. You know, logic is good. Logic is great to create the framework, but it's still the emotions that keep us in the game or take us out of the game. So, you know, everything has its role. And, and, and really, at the end of the day, when we talk about the emotional stability, it's just that. It's to create stability so that we can use the better part of who we are. We can keep ourselves more laser-focused so then the, the, intelli- the more logical part of our mind can actually lay out the framework of what's necessary, and we keep using the emotional context to keep us focused, to keep us excited, to keep us in the game long enough so we can actually see our goals transpire. So it's about aligning the mind and the heart. Absolutely, 100%, 100%. Awesome. So, uh, David, we are going to get into some quick fire questions. And one is, what is your definition of success? Well, um, well, again, that's going to be be a very personal thing for everyone. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, unfortunately, social media makes it really weird. You know, I I think the definition of, of success is, you know, again, there's various levels to it, but it's it's the the ability to to have an ideal and live up to it. I think that's probably the most important thing uh, to me when I think about people that are successful is that they have an ideal, right? And a, a, a way of living in the world, a way of being in the world that's that's more positive, and they're actually able to live up to it. Thanks for joining me this week on the Kawaka Tendix Show. Subscribe to the podcast so that you'll never miss an episode. And if you found value in this show, I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would really help us a lot to grow. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. Take care.